Once again, good morning. Uh, We have been studying the book of Ecclesiastes. You can turn to chapter 5. We're going to look at a big chunk today that I think you will uh, love and appreciate it. Um, A lot of mornings I will stop by, as I've told you before, my favorite coffee shop on the way here and get a cup of coffee, typically a little 8-ounce because I've already had some coffee in the morning. And there's one girl there that particularly, uh, when she gives it to me, it's always probably an ounce short. And I just have that moment where I'm like, do I say something? I really need that extra ounce. Do I complain about this? Or do I just take the cup that God has given me and enjoy it? It really is that dilemma that we have. Do we see the bad Or do we taste and see the good? I've said as we have gone through this book that Murray and I are trying to whittle down each sermon into one word. And as we read this this morning, you are going to think the word is money. Very close second. But I'm really using three words, if you count prepositions, words, The power to enjoy. This text is asking us a question. Do you have the power to enjoy God's gifts? So listen for that as we read this morning. Verse 8 of chapter 5. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor... And the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is hebel. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his labor that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who labors for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink And find enjoyment in all the labor with which one labors under the sun 
the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires yet God does not give him power to enjoy them but a stranger enjoys them this is Hebel it is a grievous evil if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many but his soul is not satisfied with his life's good things and he also has no burial I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in hevel and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place? All the labor of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite or his soul is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is hevel and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more hevel. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for the man while he lives the few days of his hevel life which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun. Let's pray. Father, once again we turn to you with thanksgiving for giving us your word, for giving us hearts and minds to understand, for giving us your Holy Spirit. We pray that as we come to this ancient Near Eastern wisdom that is given from you for us, that it would be words of truth and words of delight like goads firmly fixed, giving us deep inward resources to navigate life under the sun with wisdom with thankfulness, and with joy. And would this picture that you are painting it with these contrasts invite and draw others, Lord, who do not know life beyond this sun? Would you kindly, graciously do that? In Christ's name, amen.
You may or may not have heard of the book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, You may have read it. It's been around for about 20 years, been on the bestsellers list for a long time. But it's it's this guy that's made millions and millions of money. He's basically figured out the system, and he's saying he grew up with this poor dad who taught him the wrong way to think about money. Just work hard, save your money, and everything's going to be okay. And it wasn't okay for his dad. And then his friend's dad supposedly was this guy that used his money to make money. And he did really, really well, and it was totally in contrast to what his dad taught him. So it's this whole book about how wealthy people make money, how they get their money to work for them. It's very, it's very inviting. Many of you, some of you may have read it and used it in your life. But at the heart of it, the point is make a lot of money. There is a newer, more modern, contemporary version of this in a guy who has a podcast in his name. He calls himself Mr. Money Mustache. And basically, he's in his 30s, and he's retired already, and he's loaded. And the whole point of the podcast is how if you live like Mr. Money Mustache, you too can retire early and be loaded. There's probably more to it, but after a couple, that's what I learned. But there's a whole movement you may have heard of called FIRE, Financial Independence Retirement Early. Whole thing going on right now. There's a, there's a website you can go to called Bigger Pockets, and it's the same thing. It's all about how you get your money to work for you and how you become rich. And it really asks the question, Why do we want to be rich? Is it okay to be rich? Should we be rich? How does God think about wealth? And really what the Bible is asking us is sort of a different question. It isn't so much rules about money as it's asking us questions about how we see God. Do we actually have the power to enjoy God and to enjoy his gifts, and to live under a better narrative than the current cultural narrative that we have right now, and that is basically try to get rich. And if you can't, envy those who are. You may think that's not the current cultural narrative. You may not pay attention to these things. Listen to Susan White. She says this, If there is an overarching meta-narrative that tries to explain reality in our day, it is surely the meta-narrative of the free market economy. In the beginning of this narrative is the self-made, self-sufficient human being. At the end of this narrative is the big house, the big car, the expensive clothes, or whatever your definition is of success. In the middle is the struggle for that success, the greed, the getting, and spending. Most of us have made this so thoroughly our story that we are hardly aware of its influence. This is the narrative that we are presented with in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6, at least one of the narratives. It's what I'm calling our current common dominant 
cultural narrative. And this is what we're going to see in the first point. This is what the preacher is saying to us. The current common dominant cultural narrative is this. Make lots of money, or whatever your version of that is, for you. In other words, be rich toward yourself. Take care of yourself and those closest to you and ignore the fact that you might be stepping on other people to do it. And it doesn't work. It never works. It can't work. If you remember last week, the context of our passage in so many words is the house of worship. The preacher observes a person that goes to worship, goes to the temple, and as one writer says, it's like he's been in the temple, he's been in the presence of God, God who is in heaven, he is drawn near to him through the sacrifice of the wise, which points obviously to Jesus, that this transcendent God is brought near in Christ and that we can be have union and communion with God. And he's amazed by this fact He comes out of the house of worship, and what does he see? A different kind of worship, right? The world that we live in. And the first thing that he points out about this world that we live in is this. People are oppressed in order to make a lot of money. Look at verse 8. And if you think I'm jumping on the current cultural bandwagon, This is in the Bible, okay? One small footnote about this. I have a friend who's in the ministry here, and he said he was preaching through Deuteronomy and all these passages about the poor and social things, and his people kept saying, you're just trying to be woke like every other pastor today. And he said, I don't care if I'm woke or not. I'm just not asleep. The Bible's not asleep, okay? Listen to what the Bible says. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, you see what it's saying? People are oppressed. We saw in chapter 4 that the oppressed were there and there was no one to comfort them. Here, it literally says that, that justice and righteousness are plundered, they're robbed. And here, you got to see this in the text. Literally, the robbery and the plundering of justice and righteousness looks like this. It looks like people stepping on one another to get to the top. You may have heard this and like, what does this mean? But look at the text where it says, the high official is watched by higher and there are yet higher ones over them. What is that talking about? Basically, what he's saying is this. You can very well look at the whole system that is in place, whether it it, maybe it's in the government, politics, maybe it's just at the office, organizational structure. Very often the way it can work is that the whole system is in place so people can get to the top and stay at the top and they're watching themselves, watching out for themselves and one another And other people are kept on the bottom. Again, some of you are thinking, man, he's just catching up with the current of the culture right now. It's in the Bible. 
The poor and the oppressed are kept poor and kept oppressed. That is what this text is saying. It is describing organizational structures that keep people at the bottom and protect people at the top. And this is what he says in verse 8. Do not be amazed at this. See, this is where Christians have the Bible. The world doesn't have the Bible. The world is idealistic and thinks that sin is never going to happen, really. We're just shocked every time sin happens. And Christians go, no, this is in my heart. This is in us. This is in the world. This is going to happen. It's like Jesus saying, Jesus who fed the poor brought good news to the poor, cared about the poor, and at the same time, he would always say, you know what, you're always going to have the poor with you. It's a broken world. Don't be shocked. Why? Why is this continuing to happen? Look at verse 10. Because we love money and what it brings us. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves money. It's the same thing that Murray read in 1 Timothy 6. That the love of money brings about all sorts of snares. And it's the root of all kinds of evil. And that the craving for the things it gives us even causes us to wander from the faith. Jesus said it like this, the cares of this world, the love of money will choke out the gospel. Because sometimes as Christians, we get tired of making sacrifices and giving up and living our lives for others and and maybe getting put on the short end of the stick and we watch people prosper. It's like Psalm 73, right? The wicked prosper and they're, they're comfortable. They have everything they want and need and they seem to not have any problems and we have problems and issues. And we're trying to love people. And some people just say, I give up on that whole narrative. I'm just going to go down this cultural narrative because it's immediate and it seems to work. And listen to what he says. He's going to give us four reasons why it doesn't work. And they're all kind of practical. We're not going to spend a lot of time, but look at verses 11 and 12. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. What he's saying is this. If you love money and you run after money and all that it gives you, it's going to cause you more stress. You're going to have more responsibility and more attendant worry. More stuff, more work to keep up that stuff. Bigger things, bigger barns, more notes. More kids in college, here, here. Bigger bills, more stress. So much so that you can't sleep at night, and the guy that doesn't have all that stuff just... He's totally fine. Secondly, he says, verses 13 through 14, there's a grievous evil that I've seen in the sun. Riches were kept by their own who hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. Basically, he's saying this. What you have and all that you have and all you think you have can be gone just like that. It can be here today 
and gone tomorrow. The economy can tank. Your investments can go south. You might lose your job. You can't hold on to this of ultimate value. And then verses 15 through 17, he says, oh, I know what you think. You're going to be the exception to this rule, right? You're going to be the guy that can do it. You're going to be the, the woman that can do it. But he says, look, this is what's going to get us all. Verses 15 through 17, we saw this on Resurrection Easter Sunday. You're all going to die. You're all going to die. Just as you came into this world naked, and you did. You didn't have all those nice clothes on then. You might get put in a casket with clothes on. That's about it. You come into this world with nothing, and it doesn't matter how much treasure you store up, it will rust, and moths will eat it. And then lastly, chapter 5, verse 10, he says, look, here's the point. It doesn't satisfy you. And then he sort of makes a big deal out of this in chapter 6, verses 3 through 9. He says it can't satisfy you, right? It can't. And he gives this, these, this little analogy in this comparison. In this culture, two things that were very valuable important, and important were how many kids you had. It's a big deal, especially in an agrarian culture where you farm. The more help you had, that's why my dad enjoyed his three boys. We took care of the cows and all that stuff. It was a big deal. And he said, even if you have 100 children and you live 1,000 years times 2, 2,000, long life, right? You survived COVID and every other disease for the next 2,000 years. It's not going to work because it doesn't satisfy your soul. Look at verse 7. All the labor of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. That word is soul. You're not just your soul, like apart from your body and mind, like your whole being, your whole person. It can't satiate you. You were not made for stuff in that sense. So today, whatever we see is valuable. We saw this back in chapter 2. If you want to go back and look at it in your own time, whether it's money, whether it's your career, whether it's your marriage, whether it's travel, whether it's pleasure, whether it's retiring early, entertainment, family, romance, sex, morals, religion, wisdom, learning, it won't do it. Anything that we look to for status and security will not satisfy. I've told you this before. One of the things that we did is we looked to how we raised our children. And boy, we got a lot of compliments. Your kids sit so nice in church. And you start believing that stuff. We must be doing it right. Until they turn about 13. You realize, oh, this could go bad quick. Whatever we look to for status and security... Look, really, this is what Jesus says in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. One person comes in and says, look at all my status, look at what I'm secure in, look what I've done, and you're always comparing yourself with other people. 
And then Jesus says, the other guy comes and says, I got no status. I got no security. Oh, Lord, if you don't justify me, I go home bankrupt. He's pressing in and saying, what is your justification? What is your value and your worth and your status and your security? Look, the rich young ruler couldn't do it. And that's what we want, see? Let's come back. Let's hold him for just a second. Let's come back to him in a minute. But look, he follows it up in 6, 7, and 9 by saying this. He, he, said, he describes what he calls a wandering appetite, right? Well, I'm just going to scroll here, scroll there. I'm just going to push refresh. I'm just going to get on YouTube for a minute, and three hours later, I'm still not satisfied. I'm going to try that new restaurant. I'm going to try that new person, that new theology. It's really on the edge, right? Or I don't, I don't want to be left out of this new progressive leaning in the church. I've got to get on that edge. Doesn't work. Look at what he says in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 6. Don't dispute it. I know you're all American and, and you all have individual rights and, and we all we just love to argue things. He says, stop. Stop. This is the stronger person in the room. You should listen. <laughs> he's, he's inviting us and he's offering, he's offering us something, saying, you don't have to buy into this narrative. And if you're a Christian, you haven't. You have been bought with a price, and it's the, it's the blood of God himself. And you're his treasured possession, and he has spent everything on you and that begins to free you from this narrative he says don't dispute this I know it's the common cultural dominant I know it's where you live don't dispute it look I'm going to throw a couple of these out it may be a waste of time but I'm going to try it anyway look Brad Pitt, you're like, who's Brad Pitt if you're under 20? He was a famous actor, made a lot of money, but he said this. He said the emphasis on success and personal gain and money that, that is so emphasized, he said, I'm sitting in it and I'm telling you that's not it. I have everything and all you're left with, guess, listen to this, all that you're left with is yourself. And he said, I know nobody's going to want to hear that. Jim Carrey said it like this. I think everyone should get rich and famous so they can see that it's not the answer. John D. Rockefeller, the American icon, right? If you translate what he made in his day to our day, it was $418 billion dollars. This is what he said. Someone asked him, what is the one thing you wished you knew before you got started with all this? He said this, when you get to the top, nothing is there. Now, you don't have to listen to them. You just listen to the preacher. And I know what you're saying too, like, but that's not us. That's not us. I don't want all that. I know, that's, I know that stuff's true. I don't, that's Brad Pitt. But look, what we do is we, we try to like, 
have one skate over here with Jesus and one skate over here with the American dream. We just do. We want a comfortable standard of living for us and for ours, and then we give something to others. Right? I don't want to be at the top. I don't need to be at the top. I just need to be kind of in the upper bracket. And I need to make sure my kids get there, and then maybe someone else. Maybe. Remember the context of this passage. You got people who are being rich toward themselves and not others. They're stepping on others to get and elevate themselves. Jesus says it like this. You cannot serve two masters. It is impossible. And you and I will not be the exception to this rule. You are not strong enough to do it. Let me sum up this first point. And I know this is a tough first point. I know I'm giving you some law right here. The preacher leaves the house of God, or he watches this person leave the house of God, and then he is confronted with the world. You have the city of God drawing near to God, and then you have the city of man. He goes from the mountaintop of worship to the real world where we and money are worship. And then something else, thank God, he observes something else. Look at verses 18 and following. Normally at this point in the text, he would say, yet I observe something better than. Here he uses different words. Listen to the language. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. Normally he says better than, here he says here's something in a sense better, here's something good and fitting. In other words, he's saying this is the dominant narrative that we live with. Let me show you a different narrative. Let me present an alternative narrative that scripture gives you. And this is the third of what we have called receive the day passages. Okay, remember this phrase, receive the day. Some commentators have called, called them seize the day. And we saw that, the one that emphasized do everything with the might of your hand. There is that element. But really what this is emphasizing is a God-centered, gift-giving life before God. Receive the day. Three things about this. First of all, it is God-centered. It is theocentric. If you look at these very few verses, in verses 18 through 20, the word Elohim is used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is used six right here. You see, what, you see what's happening? Here is a world that he came out of worship, it was God-centered, and he walks out into the world where we're the center and he says the only thing that's going to change that, the only thing that's going to shift this current cultural narrative that is so dominant of worshiping yourself and doing life for you is a God-centered universe. A God-centered narrative. Six times. Elohim, 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 Elohim. Children, do you like orange juice? We bought some orange juice for the first time in a long time this weekend. 
and it comes in a bottle, right? Children, have you ever seen orange juice in a can? Probably not. But I grew up with this stuff. It was called concentrated orange juice, and I didn't understand it. I poured it in a thing, and I stirred it, and I poured a cup, and I was like, boom, concentrated. And that's what he's doing here. It's like this heavily concentrated, God-centered narrative. It's what, what we said last week, that this God who is in the heaven is yet at the same time one who we can draw near to and have intimacy with and union with. And therefore, all of life is worship. All of life is theocentric. All of life, as we said last week, Coram Deo, in the presence of God. In other words, not just inside the temple, but outside the temple, in light of all the other temples that are exalted in our midst. Do you see that? In fact, in New Testament terms, you are the temple. Changes everything, doesn't it? Theocentric. And secondly, that means it is a gift. You can't read this without... Hear it again, look. I have seen what is good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one labors under the sun the few days his life that God has what? Given him. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions. This is the gift of God. In other, word, other words, this narrative is God-centered and everything from God, once again, he emphasizes, is a gift from God. It is not earned. And this is the problem. Let's think about this for a second. Here's the problem. Paul says in Romans that grace is a gift. The wages of sin is death. Jesus, through His death and His resurrection and through His obedience, provide the wages that we can't provide. And so He earns our salvation. Everybody agrees with that, right? And yet we go into our jobs and what do we do? We think we earn our wages. And yes, you do at one level. Paul says if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. In other words, go work, be responsible, all that good stuff. But it's still a gift. You will never see your job and your money correctly if you think it's what you earn and deserve ultimately. It is a gift. We are recipients and receivers. But here's the best one. This is the best gift he gives us. This is the last thing. We'll, we'll begin to land the plane here. The specific gift that he gives that he mentions in this receive the day passage. Remember, all of them have a different sort of angle. A different, a different tint to them. And this one, you can hear it over and over. What word do you continue to hear? Enjoyment. In other words, if you are going to receive the day, you are going to see life lived in the presence of God, everything a gift from God, from your salvation to the very food on your table to your job, you have got to be given another gift. And some people just have this gift, and some people don't. And do you know what it is? It's the power to enjoy it. Well, this is a tough one. In other words, when you get that cup of coffee and you notice it's down an ounce, you have a dilemma on your hands. 
Let's look a little more closely at this really quick. You look at your footnote. It isn't just the power to enjoy. Look at what it says in the footnote. The power to what? To see the good. Wow. Wow. This is like Harry Potter land for a second. Muggles didn't have the power to see Harry Potter land. They just saw a wall. Harry saw an entrance to another world, right? He had eyes to see. Non-muggles, am I saying that right? Thank you. Look at verse 20. This is fascinating. Literally, it says, you think it says he will not much remember the days of his life. What that literally means is he will not much brood over the days of his life. Because God will keep him occupied with joy in his heart. Do you see the contrast? Do you struggle brooding over and complaining and grumbling? I do too. You've not been around this church long. You've heard my testimony that really is becoming a testimony that I went to see a counselor when I first moved here because I saw joy in a friend of mine that I did not have. I could not see the good no matter how hard I tried, no matter how much I prayed, and yet there was all this shame admitting that to people. I didn't want to say that to people, that I'm a pessimist. I look on the cup half empty. The gospel's true. I knew the good news, but I, I just didn't sense it. And I went to that counselor, and the first thing he asked me, why are you here? I said, here it goes. I don't have joy. He did this test, and sure enough, it rated my level of joy. Most of you may remember this. Four percent. Four. At least there was a little. Right? But you know what that did? That, that started a, a process that you see here. The, the Hebrew word for recall to mind here is yizkor. This one of being occupied and remembering and it's recalling to mind. It means to sing. I'm not making this stuff up. It, the idea is revelation. That God must open our eyes and the eyes of our hearts. Look at verse 9. Look at, look at what he says there. He's basically saying, you're either wandering with your appetite and your soul trying to find joy and life, or you see things differently. You see a different narrative. You see a God who is rich toward his children. Somebody told me recently they read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And they said, you know that story in the beginning where he talks about his dad and his friend's dad? It was not true. He made it up. I was like, what? Ruined the whole book? He's like, yeah, it's kind of just he used it. And it was like, it was a myth. And what the preacher is doing here is saying, look, 
All this chasing after that, it's a myth. It's not going to work. Let me give you a better narrative. Last thing, very, very minor thing, or a very important thing, but small. Go back to chapter 5, verse 9. Remember, you got this picture of a world that runs like this, stepping on other people's, even leaving systems in place. Well, I'm not worried what that guy makes as long as I make this. He said, let me give you a contrast to that. Let me give you a king cultivated, a king committed to cultivated fields. Think about that for a second. We know in the Pentateuch there are laws after laws after laws for the nation of Israel that was given land as an inheritance. Boaz could not say, I earned that land, I got that land, I made an investment in that land. It was given to him. And it was his responsibility and gift to take that land and cultivate it for his own good, for his own family, but not just for him and his family, but for his workers. They needed jobs and dignity in those jobs, and they were not to touch the edges of the field. And notice what they didn't do. They didn't go, here, don't work for your food. I'm just going to give you and give you and give you. That doesn't make any sense. I'm, I'm going to give this, I'm going to give this, I'm going to give this. They actually gave poor people the dignity of working and gathering and gleaning. So they might go home and go, look, look what God gave me and I was able to sort of contribute to. See, when you have a king that is committed to cultivated fields, you have a better narrative. And you do. Let me close with this verse. Jesus comes and he freaks everybody out. He says, I'm the king. And I'm bringing a kingdom. And I know you want it like this and you want it like that. And you want it now. And you don't want to wait. And you don't want to trust me. I get all that. But let me tell you this. The spirit of the Lord is centered right here upon me. And he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to those who are captivated by this narrative and the love of money. Fill in the blank. And I'm going to cause the blind to recover their sight to see differently. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. And people argue forever. Does he mean the poor or the spiritually poor? He means both. Because when the spiritually poor find the wealth and the riches of the kingdom of God, they stop living for themselves. And they become generous. And of course the poor and the oppressed in their midst and other will be cultivated differently. Absolutely every time. I could go on and on and on. This is a loaded passage. I encourage you to spend time in it. Let's pray. Oh God, if you were not committed to cultivated fields, we would not be here. We are the fruit of your labor. You have not only come to this earth, 
and given up all of your wealth and become poor so that we may become rich. Lord, you have given us every good gift that we have. And Father, we thank you for that. But you've also cultivated in us a new heart, new life, new eyes. And God, may you give us the power to enjoy. The power to share. The, the power to be generous toward you and others. As you have been to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.